What's up? What's up? This is Zach Boschman checking in. You're watching the Citizen Truth Podcast. We are so excited today to have retired Major Danny Shorson on the podcast, a.k.a. the Skeptical Vet. Danny, let's get right into it, man. Why peace? Why become a peace activist? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you asked that because uh, you ever notice nobody ever talks about peace anymore? I mean, I got a button on my shirt today. I, I'm a button guy, right? Usually it's like old losing Democratic campaigns from the 70s. But it's, it's you know, John Lennon, imagine peace. Nobody imagines peace anymore. Uh, I think that one ex instructive example is you take like World War One, you know, the end of that war, which is supposed to be the, the war to end all wars. It was originally called Armistice Day and it was meant to celebrate like peace, like never again, war to end all wars. It's like then we, would, then we just started calling it Veterans Day and we were like, well, I guess there'll always be veterans. I guess there'll always be war. So we talk about an anti-war movement more often than we talk about a peace movement. Now, we don't have a very strong one of either right now, at least compared to other points in our history. But I think it is a radical act to say that peace should be the normal. And, uh, and because we're so far through the, the looking glass, I think we have to be willing to show the courage to say, no, I reject the idea that the realists give us that like, oh, you always got to be always got to expect there'll be wars. And, 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 you know, hey, human beings being human beings, there's always going to be war. No, we have more agency than that. The, the main reason, though, for peace is because it's peace is decency, it's life and it's dignity. Uh, and the absence of peace very quickly, historically and conceptually steals all of that from us, even if it's invisible to most people who maybe aren't serving in the wars directly. Uh, peace steals from you. Uh, which is why the Pentagon's, you know, trade off, you know, recruiting slogan should be, you know, the Department of Defense. This is why you can't have nice things. Awesome. So I want to get uh, to, you know, what led you to to that, you know, uh, mentality. Um, but, you know, let's let's go back uh, to the, the younger Danny, you know, um, where did you grow up? You know, what was your upbringing like? And, you know, did you come from a military family? Just give us some background. You know, I'm, I don't come from a military family. Uh, I'm 37, which means I'm of the age where everyone's grandfather was in World War II. Everyone's, mm -hmm. you know, they may not have all been in combat, but both of mine were, but they weren't soldiers. I mean, they weren't professional soldiers. They would look back on that kind of fondly, but it was always like a lot of jokes about it. And hey, couldn't wait to get out, you know, and take the uniform off. They were like citizen soldiers. Uh, not really that. I, I was one of the first in the family to do, you know, college. And oddly enough, I went to West Point, but that's just because I was a hyper secret geek, you know. I mean, I hid it as much as possible from so that I could be cool and kiss pretty girls, you know. I grew up in Staten Island, you know, not like, you know, the wire or something, but definitely one of the, you know, relatively working class bits, uh, that kind of family. Uh, firemen, that that sort of thing. So the paramilitary public service thing was kind of valued in my life circle, but a professional military career was, was not typical. There wasn't much of that. Um, I think I joined because I wanted to be special. I mean, it was like a lot of patriarchy and sort of toxic uh, patriotism. I mean, my, as a 17 year old, my, my mother assigned me into West Point. I was not yet 18 when I graduated high school. And like four days later, I was a cadet basic training, you know, up the river at West Point. But uh, I wish I could say that it was like pure economic motives, you know, I mean, it's true that there wasn't really a lot of money to pay for college, but that's not what motivated me. I wish I could say like, I just so desperately wanted to learn leadership and serve my country. Yeah, there was some of that. But actually, I just wanted to be like a cool, tough guy who uh, everyone would adulate 
and would uh, think is special. And I probably wanted to travel a bit and it seemed like a really good way to do it. But this is before 9-11, July of 01. So it was an easy decision. Yeah, military training is hard. Yeah, military life is hard moving around and stuff. But it would, I never, ever, ever for a second really thought that I would like be at war, let alone for my whole career. I don't like describing that guy, but I think it's very important to be honest about that um, because, because there are other kids today at that age who are thinking about the military and I'm not telling them not to do it. I'm, I just think we have to be honest about our motives if we're going to counsel people to maybe rethink that or, or understand what, at least what it is, like an informed consent like you have to have for a medical procedure of the most basic variety. You can't get your appendix out without informed consent, but you could bomb babies with just because you're 17 and your mom signed you in or you're 18 and then you don't have to get permission. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, related to nine 11 cause you had gone before nine 11. It was just sort of for that prestige, I guess, West point prestige. And you hadn't, you know, thought that you would, were going to war when you joined. Yeah, that that's, that's definitely true. I thought that I would get to go to like the Balkans take some cool pictures in like Macedonia or Sarajevo, Sarajevo, uh, probably marry a pretty German girl. I mean, this was the, this is how silly the thinking was. Um, but it was pre nine 11. Uh, the expectation was if there was a war, probably like a hundred hours, like the Persian Gulf and not that many Americans would die. Um, but when nine 11 happened, I, I did understand that the world had sort of changed. I know it's a cliche, but it was pretty uh, intense, you know, as a, as a cadet, cause you know, if the war is still going on, you graduate, you're going like, there's not a, like, the decision's already been made. And when they started announcing the names of dead graduates at breakfast in the morning with some regularity, you know, in 2003, four, five, when Iraq really went bad, the severity of it really was, was brought home to me. And uh, I remember thinking at certain points, uh, a combination of pride and like wanting to get in the fight, you know, revenge for 9-11, my city, you know, we had friends who had been killed as firemen, family friends. Um, it was that revenge toxic streak, but then there was also that secret streak you just didn't talk about unless you got really, really drunk with your buddies and decided to have like a, you know, like a bro fest. The other side of it was like, what have I gotten myself into? There was definitely that feeling. And I think a lot of people had that if they were honest. Mm-hmm. So you graduated West Point and then you got deployed to Iraq. So I did, I, I graduated in May of 05 and, um, you know, this is the anniversary weekend, you know, we're recording on, uh, Friday the 19th. So it's the day before the 18th anniversary of that war. A lot of young people kind of forget the resonance of that war. And that's not anybody's fault. You know, it's the pivot point in my life. So sometimes I get frustrated with that, but it's like, well, why would they? Um, What's forgotten is that at that point in like 05, 06, Iraq was everything. You know, nine out of every 10 soldiers who was deployed to war was in Iraq, not Afghanistan. Afghanistan was seen to be going well. It was kind of quiet there. If you got sent to Afghanistan after you graduated West Point, we would be like, oh, lucky. What an easy tour. But actually, we would also be thinking like, oh, man, I hope I don't get sent to Afghanistan because then I won't get to prove what a man I am and, you know, get to fight. Because that's how that's that's we were trained. Do you want to do your job? You know, and, and there's a lot of toxicity to it. But uh, it was all Iraq. But I do think it's instructive that the war theoretically starts in Afghanistan, sort of. At least there's some connection to 9-11. But my class, 05, I'd probably say seven to eight out of 10 graduates within 18 months of graduation were not in Afghanistan, but were in Iraq. And, and that just tells you how far off the rails this war on terror went, how far away from the 9-11 justification it went within just a, a few years. Yeah. So what what was that experience like uh, in, in Iraq? You know, what did you do and uh, how yeah. did you feel about things then when you when you were in, in it, you know? 
I've actually read quotes of mine that have been like posted on like uh, event, you know, flyers, like things that I apparently have said or written. I don't really remember saying or writing, but then I go back and find out I did. But a couple they always use is like this quote I must have said or written about, you know, Iraq, like the horror and the futility and the hopelessness of that deployment being like kind of the pivot point of my life. And, 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 and that's true. I mean, I'll be honest with you, like my stomach hurts this weekend. And, and I don't mean that as hyperbole. I'm not feeling good about it this year. You know, every, every year I handle the Iraq war anniversary differently. I have a lot of shame about it, like for my country, for my own enthusiasm for it initially and uh, lack of courage to like see what was before our eyes. It was not a secret. That's a myth that like, oh, well, we didn't know. We only had the evidence put before us. I mean, a, a simple Google search, the evidence that this was a lie or at least a major mislead was available. And, and so many of us went along with it. And I was one of them. I will, I will say that by the time I got there, I had, I had a little bit of skepticism. I had started reading some stuff and the war was going bad. I've always been kind of a cerebral kid and a reader. So I did dig into some critical stuff. But when I got to Iraq in October of 06, this is just before the surge and the height of the civil war. In fact, December 06 was the bloodiest month for Iraqi civilians. Think about 4,000 of them killed each other in the streets plus the ones we killed, et cetera. So the experience of the Iraq war was, first of all, I got extended three months. I was a scout platoon leader. So I'm like at the, you know, ground level in combat every day um, for an officer. That's the closest you're going to get, right? You're, you're, you're with the dudes, like you're a scout platoon leader. Um, what I found is that there was a civil war we started, which I felt a lot of shame for early in the tour. Uh, it was clear that, that we did this. You know, I read enough books to understand that this is not how Iraq normally operates. So I got mm -hmm. the Sunnis killing the Shias and it's more complicated than that, but basically, uh, and then both sides, the rebels on both sides, because people don't like being occupied, it turns out. People are touchy about that kind of thing. I saw a red dawn. Americans might be too. Like yeah. the Russians invade Texas. You know how many people in America fantasize about that? People outside of, you know, Houston who just wish the Cubans would invade? Imagine, so, you know, we don't have a lot of empathy for the other side. So both sides are attacking us and attacking each other. So I'm policing a civil war. My country started. My guys are getting hit. Uh, I'm losing people, you know, with, by January 20th, I got there October 11th, by January 20th, about 50% of my platoon is killed and wounded. Wow. That's, that's a lot. You know, I mean, it's not Normandy beach, but it's a lot. Um, by that point I, I was, I was, I'd fallen apart. Uh, I mean, I was able to do my job, but I was done. I was broken sort of morally and intellectually. And I left Iraq totally opposed to that war everything the whole thing get it i knew it was a lie i read probably 40 books just on that topic while while i was there i was like scholar by night you know platoon leader by day uh, i wasn't quite as critical of the entire war on terror or the american military industrial complex and militarism but i was definitely anti-iraq war the last Wait. bit about that the, the problem is i stayed in you know almost 13 more years and that's something that is worth grappling with and is probably one of the you know one of the shames of my life in a way so when you were in Iraq, kind of coming to that realization, um, had uh, other people that you served with at the time, or did they have a similar mindset? Um, or were they critical of you because you were ashamed of, of that war? Uh, so I think it would surprise people to know. And I'll speak mainly for my like brother lieutenants, right? So they're, I went to West Point with a lot of those guys. And the ones I didn't know from West Point, um, you know, you train together for like a year before you go. And, and that's who you hang out with, right? You know each other's wives and girlfriends. You, you drink together. You're buddies, right? You're like, you're like right out of college except in the Army, you know? I would say it would surprise people to know that by this in, or by early 07, so a few months into our tour, I'd say 50% of the lieutenants were 
at least very skeptical and fatalistic about that war. Um, now, how many of those guys would have spoken out publicly? Well, I didn't even speak out publicly at that point, except just to my buddies or like family. Um, how many of them have since even, now we're talking 13, 14 years later, publicly written an article or attempted to or, or, or made a speech? Might just be me. So on one side of that, you'd say, oh, look, there's no dissent in the military. On the other side, I'd tell you that, like I said, about 50% of the officers and all of my friends, the guys that I kind of rolled with were, this is a mess, this is hopeless, maybe we shouldn't even be here. Uh, but the professional identity thing keeps you kind of in line, uh, as well as like the economic security. But I think a lot of it is that social pressure. You're a soldier, you don't want to be perceived as uh, selling out your brother folks when they might get killed on a patrol the next day. But in terms of our private views, when we were like smoking hookah pipes and, you know, too many cigarettes and drinking Arab Red Bulls. Yeah, there was a lot of um, dissension about that war. It wasn't systemic. It wasn't like, okay, America's a militarist society, but it was very much like this is a mess. Bush is lying, that whole deal. And that, and these are West Pointers. These are like upper middle class guys, conservative mostly, but you'd be, I think people would be surprised to know that. That's really interesting. So you came back from Iraq and you stayed in 13 more years, you said? Yeah. Uh, well, I guess by the time I got back from Iraq, I stayed in about uh, 11 more because we had gotten extended. So I didn't get back until New Year's Eve of 07. So almost 08. But yeah, I went and um, I got promoted to captain. Uh, I was thinking about getting out. I stayed in for a lot of bad reasons. I mean, I justified it to myself. I, I had one boss that I liked back then. I mostly didn't like the guys I worked for, but I did like this one guy. And he said, oh, the good guys who have empathy and are competent enough to stay in. If all the good guys get out, then only like the sociopaths and the incompetence will be left. I always like gold stars. I mean, ever since kindergarten, right? Cause I'm an American male. That's my birthright. You know what I mean? Entitlement. So I really like that. And, uh, and I let myself be convinced. And then also, you know, you get promoted and this is your identity. Now it's all I'd ever done since I was, yeah. you know, just before I was 18. So, and then I ended up as a, a captain in a, another cavalry recon squadron in uh, Kansas. And, and that's the unit I went to Afghanistan with. For the next surge, I was lucky enough to catch both surges. <laughs> mm -hmm. And by lucky, I'm being facetious. But uh, when I went to Afghanistan, I was a troop commander. So now instead of a platoon leader, I had, I had a few platoons. And instead of about 20, 25 guys, I was in command of about 120 on my own outpost in Kandahar. And then I saw this other war, the other side, the good war. Obama called it the good war. And that was not my assessment. Your assessment was that it was the good war, you said? No, I mean, that was, oh. I mean I, th that was not my assessment. You know, yeah. Obama had said he ran against the Iraq war in 08 mm -hmm. and I was with him. I was on board. I was like secret canvas in Southern Indiana, you know, on the weekends in a hoodie. Yeah. Uh, not done by the way, like very, pretty rare thing to do, but I was off the rails a bit mentally. Um, and I also thought it was the right thing to do, but he had run against the Iraq war as the dumb war, but he had said during the campaign, the Afghan war is the good war. That's the one we should be fighting and focusing on. Turns out that was kind of a political trick. Uh, I actually assessed Afghanistan to be, equally or more hopeless. Uh, and while it may not have been started with the same degree of like outright obfuscation and lies, it was, uh, it was very clear that the narrative of like what we could achieve and what our mission was did not line up with the realities on the ground. Cause I was in Kandahar, which is kind of the heart of the Taliban. And we're playing on their home turf. And it was like going into Fenway park. You know what I mean? It's like a tough place to play. And it was very clear. We controlled zero feet of territory that was not our base. Uh, sometimes my soldiers and I would like dive into a canal right out the gate because we were ambushed and then we walked out. And I just couldn't square that with this idea that 
surging more troops in Afghanistan. I was there at the height of the surge. We've never had more Americans in Afghanistan when I was there. And I still didn't control a yard of territory outside my base unless I was standing on it. And uh, I just started thinking, in what universe is American military power going to alter this society to the vision that they've put forth? Oh, by the way, the Biden administration is, seems to be still peddling that same mythology, even though I think they know better. Mm-hmm. So uh, you came back from Afghanistan and you go and teach history at West Point, right? That's, that's right. That's what kept me in the second time because I was, I was thinking, oh, maybe I'll get out after this one. I don't know that I ever really was seriously getting out, by the way. I think it was something I told myself to survive. Mm-hmm. But I, I had told myself, uh, I applied to teach at West Point. It's actually fairly selective. It was like 10 or 15% acceptance rate. Uh, I had said, if you get accepted to go back and teach at West Point, then you stay in because that's kind of your dream job. I'm a geek. I, I love school. I would, I would be a permanent student if I could. I mean, I basically am. I just found a way to get paid for it, sort of. But, uh, and then I told myself, if you don't, then you'll get out. But I kind of knew I'd get accepted. I mean, I was well regarded as a cadet in the history department when I was there. And I just kind of knew I was going to get accepted. But it was a dream job. They sent me to grad school in a civilian university, University of Kansas. I still live in this town now, uh, Lawrence, Kansas. And I loved it. I didn't have to wear a uniform for two years. I got paid full army captain salary to be a grad student. Meanwhile, the other grad students were 22 and they're mowing lawns and, you know, in the summer struggling. And I was very lucky. Um, but I was, I was, I was, I had basically a, a nervous breakdown in grad school. I mean, it was like, as soon as I stopped white knuckling it, you know, and like the rubber band snapped. So I was going through a lot of that, but I did like the job two years in grad school. And then I taught at West Point for the next two years after that. And it, it was really the pro- it was the joy of my professional life. Um, imperfect, but definitely the best job in the army. Probably partly because it wasn't really as much like the real army. I mean, it it is, you know, you wear a uniform, the cadets salute you before class starts and stuff. But and in the summer, you help out with like military training. But for the most part, it's um, it's like a real university. So you what what did you teach there? I taught the uh, primarily I taught the freshman history, U.S. history, American history survey course, you know, Jamestown to Obama, I used to call it. And that's what we taught. Nothing existed before Jamestown, by the way. I don't know if you heard, there was no people living here before that. Um, but that's the syllabus. I mean, then you, we only had 40 lessons to do it. That's not an excuse, by the way. It should have been crafted differently. And um, what was interesting about the history department at West Point is people would be amazed by what I got away with. So on June 1st, I have a book coming out called uh, the, uh, the United States, A True History. It's it's a beast. It's uh, it's, a, it's it's basically my lectures. It's It's like what I taught. And I really didn't change it much. And the reason I did that is I thought it would be interesting for folks to see, A, my argument that America's always been an empire and like racism and indigenous genocide. It's not totally well, you know, new ground, but I think I take a different angle. But people will read that and be like, wait, someone was teaching this at West Point. And like I said, with the dissent within the lieutenants in Iraq, people would probably be surprised to know that I would say 30 to 50 percent of the people who taught U.S. history when I was there, the instructors were teaching something pretty similar. I mean, these West Point freshman cadets who graduated in like these kids graduated in like 2019 and 20. So they're out in the force. Some of them are in Afghanistan. Um, they were getting a pretty critical view of American history, which, which is not to say um, we were purposely being critical. We were just teaching what happened. Right. But one would expect, I think, that West Point would teach like an automaton version yeah. of patriotic American history. Not really. Some of the instructors lean that way. And there was some flexibility in what you could teach. But um but our boss at the time, and I'll stop there, uh, 
our boss, the head of the American division, the, who, who was in charge of, who's Colonel Gregory Dattis. And I work with him now, you know, he's involved in the Eisenhower Media Network with me. We've collaborated. I mean, he was a pretty progressive guy. I mean, which is to say a pretty thoughtful guy. I mean, he, he, he was on top of the cutting edge scholarship and he gave us enormous independence and challenged us to teach like a critical version of American history, just like they do in other universities. And I think that would surprise people. It was great. I loved it. I loved everything about it. I'm still in touch with so many of my cadets, which is a whole other thing, but. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you made a, a, a positive impact, you know, on, on some of the people you taught there. Um, so I, when, when did you have this uh, like political awakening where you decided, okay, I, I need to become an activist, uh, you know, for peace and be more outspoken? So to try to keep that brief, I will say there was basically a three-phase journey. Um, there wasn't like a single pivot point. Mm-hmm. But there was like three phases. So I turned against the Iraq war within a month of being there. I think I was ready. I think I went there skeptical enough. Like I was like, eh, this, something's not right about this. And then I saw it firsthand. I was like, oh, my God, this is horrifying. And and it really was. I mean, the amount of death and just knowing our country had done it. And, you, you know, you, you just don't forget those smells and sights. But I left Iraq against the Iraq war and skeptical of like the Bush neoconservative team. But that's as far as it went. I left Afghanistan done with the entire war on terror and leaning in the direction of maybe the U.S. is just kind of aggressive. Like maybe our whole system is sort of geared towards this like endless war. Uh, In grad school, I had two years where all I had to do was go to school. I thought grad school is super easy. I mean, I have like quasi photographic memory. I've always been good at bookish stuff. So, you know, I didn't have to devote a lot of time. So I just read all day. That's what I do for fun, right? It's not recommended, like, please get a real hobby. But like, that's what I do, you know, with my free time. So I had this experiential Iraq, Afghanistan journey of like, okay, I'm getting a little more radical or what people would say is radical. I think it's rational, frankly, um, as cocky as that sounds. But that time in grad school, I had all this time to just devote to the study, the scholarship. Now I'm linking scholarship to experience. And I'm like seeing these things about the systemic issues. It is in grad school that I write Ghost Riders of Baghdad, my first book, which is kind of like a, it's a, it's a wildly anti-Iraq war and pretty anti-war in general book masquerading as half memoir. And so it got through the censors. They weren't paying much attention to be honest with you or it wouldn't have gotten through. So I, I published an anti-war book on active duty. That's not courageous. Real courage is like whistleblowing, resigning, all those things. I didn't have the courage for any of that, but it is rare. It's not done. Mm-hmm. Um, that didn't make a lot of waves because it didn't sell a lot of books and they didn't really notice. Yeah. Was, so was there, was there any backlash from that first book? M- minimal. Uh, a couple of colonels told me that I was a nightmare and a bad leader, but there was no disciplinary stuff. I got some talking tos. I got, um, a little bit of social ostracization it was very minimal. I mean, honestly, it was almost amazing how little pushback there was, but after I got a taste of the writing and I, people started to want to hear what I say a little bit you know, for their sins. I don't know why they would, but I started writing articles and it's interesting. The articles is what got me. So after West Point, I go back to Fort Leavenworth and by 2000, late 2018, I've written like, I've published like 120 articles. I'm pretty manic. I mean, if if you've seen my output, I'm not saying it's all good, but I I write a lot with too much. Um, The army noticed then. Uh, The word is that an anonymous tip came into the inspector general's office of Fort Leavenworth saying that I was like breaking the regulations by being critical or like uh, using pejoratives on the commander in chief. So I was investigated. I was put on a four month hold or I wasn't allowed to write anything except history. 
which is funny because if they'd have seen the history I was writing, they know I was just as radical. But um, in the end, they decided not to martyr me, basically. I was given like a verbal reprimand. And then uh, very quickly after that, I was able to medically retire. I mean, I was quietly let go. And, and, and that was actually a pretty mutual breakup, which isn't real in romance, but was real in this. <laughs> like it, it, it happened. And um, once I was under investigation, I, had, I, I, I don't think I could stay silent anymore. It felt obscene to do so. And I understand the self-righteousness of that statement. I'm only speaking for myself, actually. I used to be a little more bitter and be mad that my friends don't say what they think or, or, or think what I think. But uh, for me, it would, it would be an obscene and grotesque to stay silent. So I just kept writing and then, you know, more interest built. And it turned out I was able to kind of make a living doing it, you know, with, with a modest pension to back it up. But yeah, by the time I left the army, I was on, I was game on. I mean, I'd already been like speaking at rallies, but out of uniform, I was pushing it, you know? Mm-hmm. So once they let me go, I was like ready. You know, I, I was like, I was like a bull that had been like held back, you know, and then they just let me go. And since then, uh, Manic Danny's been out, you know, I'm just trying. I mean, I, I don't know that I'm succeeding and I'm not even know, know that I'm doing well, but I care and I try. And I guess that's more than some. Right. Yeah. What would you say to, uh, you know, somebody that's in the military right now that is, you know, running into some of those, uh, you know, same thoughts that, that you had when you were in? I'm always so I get a lot of emails and a lot of social media messages from active duty folks. I mean, from veterans, but I, I mean, a surprising number. I mean, what if I told people that maybe 25, I can't name their names. I promise I'm, I'm not making this up. Like maybe 25 of my former students have reached out to me with some sort of like question of dissent saying, you know, ah, I, I just, I just don't feel right about this. I, some of them are thinking about resigning. One of them became a conscience objector. I could say his name, I guess, has a Kyra Rust, first West Point conscience objector in like 20 years, got approved, you know? So there's dissent even among the West Point officers who are supposed to be like the most professional, most sort of conservative by tradition, at least. Um, what I, I'm always hesitant and I always open every email back to these people or phone calls saying, listen, I cannot tell you what to do, but who am I, right? I, I stayed. And I'm not even sure that like military service in and of itself is an evil or something, but I'm very skeptical of this military adulation and fetishization. The fact mm-hmm. people have said, thank you for service. The fact people always have to say to me stuff like, um, well, I know I wasn't there, so I don't get to have an opinion like you do. Like I, I, I stop people. I'm like, nope, don't, you don't know any less. You Like I don't have any more wisdom than you just, just because I'm a soldier. If I have it, it's because I, I, I went into the books and I happen to react to it a certain way. Most people don't. These generals who have 40 years of service, they know the least, they have the least rational views about what's going on out there. But what I tell people is, you know, obviously it's, it's gotta be your decision. I don't think most people can just like straight up judge that, but I do tell them read to read. Um, I lean them just, just to educate themselves, to get outside of the matrix, frankly. Uh, intellectualism is not valued largely in the military. It is a serious anti-intellectual culture. Um, if you're an intellectual officer, the word intellectual is put in italics and they're like pejorative italics. My, my colonel, one of my colonels used to say, oh, Danny, <laughs> he's one of those intellectual officers. I mean, he would say it like that. And I'm thinking like, dude, I would have taken your lunch money and I wasn't even a tough kid if you talked to me like that, but you're a colonel and I'm a captain, right? Point is, I tell them like read and educate and then I, I send resources their way they may not know about, like the GI rights hotline. Like you've got options in terms of dissent, but the biggest thing, and this is another exasperating self-righteous to any moment, but I believe it profoundly. I say, 
in the end, this is temporary, this military thing, you're gonna have to like look yourself in the mirror. So those moral quandaries, they're coming back. So sometimes taking like a hard road now that I maybe even I wish I took sooner, you mm -hmm. know, will pay off later. Cause I mean, I, there is a ter guilt is a terrible thing, you know, and self doubt. And I, I don't want to see anybody else live that. Yeah. So I feel like, uh, you know, a lot of us, um, civilians are kind of disconnected from foreign policy. Um, and I was talking to the author, uh, David Vine, Mm -hmm. He came out with a book, The United States of War, recently, a third in his trilogy. And he was calling for bringing back the draft as a, a method to get uh, more people engaged with foreign policy. Do you think that's a good idea, a bad idea? So I've, I've written about this a lot. Um, some of like my mentors, people that I work with and look up to, like Andrew Basevich, um, Major General uh, Dennis Leach and Colonel Wilkerson, Larry Wilkerson, Colin Powell's old chief, they write a lot about this and they, and they do kind of advocate for bringing back some sort of conscription. I think on, on a number of levels, I agree with them. Uh, I have doubts about mandatory anything, you know, um, in terms of I have concerns about like bodily and spiritual autonomy. Right. And this notion that like we always have to have this huge military but I will say this from a practical perspective and also from a certain moral perspective, there is something to use my favorite word again. There is something wildly obscene about a society that kills and maims millions by low estimates, some, somewhere above a million, you know, foreigners since 9-11 stays at war for 20 years while the American people are not only not engaged in terms of having to do it, but don't even have to pay attention because we've made war as invisible and as abstract as possible. And the fastest way to do that is to take their physical safety out of the equation. This is, you can be an American citizen with no obligation right now. Your country can kill in your name and you can pretend it doesn't. And then the second thing is we won't even take your money. I mean, we'll put it on the credit card for your grandkids or whatever, but there's not even a war tax. There's not even a pay as you go. We pay, we pay, we pay record low, historically low taxes right now while we're, fighting wars global wars who fights a global war the romans and the mongols it's not done right um i think that there is something that i like to believe and maybe this is a myth didn't stop vietnam exactly or at least not quickly american mothers might read and fathers right um might read the newspaper and actually flip to the foreign policy section if their junior in high school was on the hook a year later and there does feel like there's something really, really dirty about that level of abstraction. And I'm always left thinking about the Yemeni child who breathes his last breath, dozens will today, by the way, from starvation, and the uh, whatever, name the nationality, brown or black child overseas that's being bombed. War is not abstract to them when it's an American plane or bomb or, or drone dropping it, or an American made bomb dropped by one of our theocratic allies like the Saudis. To them, it's real. To us, it's not. The gap between those, I call that indecency. And I will never stop screaming about it until the day I die. Now, that, of course, unfortunately, makes me a very uh, <laughs> unhappy person to be around or, or a frustrating, insufferable one. But I don't know. I just feel like if I saw what I saw and I came to the conclusions I came to and then I chose apathy, I don't think I'd be able to look in the mirror. So the draft, the 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 advantage of it, at least, is some sort of responsibility. But what I would like to see is a step further where we don't need a draft to fill a, a million man army and air force and all that because we're not always on a war footing because we found a different way to 
interact because it's going to be climate change or nuclear catastrophe and mismanagement that ends the human race. And it will. I'm not very bullish on the human species, but if we're going to stop that, it requires collective action and war is the opposite of that. War is separate trenches, fiefdoms, and it's utterly counterproductive. It's actually irrational. War is actually irrational. These realists tell us like it's irrational to talk about peace. Really? Because it's war and, and that kind of thinking that's going to make sure that like I don't have great grandkids. Like, because there is no more of those ever. Um, so just one last question. Do you have any hope right now for, for a lasting peace? I don't have, uh, well, I, I, I do somehow maintain like hope. Um, I'm not optimistic. There's very little that I'm seeing, not just in the United States, but sort of throughout much of the world that leads me to believe that anyone is serious about talking real alternatives to war. A lot of the discussion I see in the American Democratic Party, especially, or, or the vague left, like the moderate left, and even in like the European left, which is like left of ours, but still pretty mild, what they talk about is alternatives, like polite alternatives within the war system. Nobody's talking about making it so a Raytheon executive can't be the national security advisor. Uh, nobody's talking about dismantling the Pentagon budget and investing in human needs, social needs and infrastructure. No one is talking about any sort of redistribution of the militarized global funding or cutting off the American arms industry, which is the, late, the last great American industry. We used to make automobiles and everything else and grain. And now the really the one thing we're number one at is gun running. We're number one, USA. No one's talking about that. And so that that's why I'm, I mean, I'm not just trying to be like a sophisticated veneer pessimist. No one's showing me much. And it's not just the United States, it's throughout the West. And we're also seeing the rise of these right-wing nationalists like Modi and Bolsonaro and Orban and Hungary and, you know, even Boris Johnson to a certain extent. I'm not bullish on peace. And so long as the Democratic Party has decided that it is politically palatable and uh, is going to score them political points to demonize China and Russia, then we're going to have an armed globe. We're going to have uh, separate camps like we did in the Cold War. Everyone's going to keep building more nukes. They're going to point their bayonets metaphorically and physically at one another. And we're going to divide the world into armed camps. And the poorest and the least among us are going to suffer first. And um, and I really wish a bunch of uh, really, really Bible thumping American evangelicals would uh, pay a little attention to say, like, I don't know, the Sermon on the Mount or something or the first shall be last. Because uh, we throw the we throw the last, uh, you know, the lowest among us under the bus as a matter of course. And if they don't speak English and they don't live in our borders, then they're really they don't they're invisible. And so, no, I'm not particularly bullish on it. But I will say that uh, the BLM movement and some of the activism in the streets about other issues gives me hope, because if we can be intersectional to use the young people buzzword that is important that I'm learning. Um, we show the ties between war overseas and empire at home and militarized police and racial injustice. We show that those things are connected. And then there's a hope that we take some of that energy and we go bigger with it. We go more systemic. So I'm not quitting, but I think uh, it, last point, the extent that I have hope, it's a grassroots hope. It's a, it, that's a cliche, but it's a grassroots hope. It's not coming from the 1%. It's not coming from the big great man theory of history. You will, salvation's not coming from the top folks. And I don't need to tell anybody on this podcast listening, probably that, but my hope is, is, a, is a grassroots hope. And um, that's going to require a lot of ground game.
stuff that I'm not as good at as I wish I was, you know, but I'm trying. Danny, thank you so much for being on. Really appreciate what you're doing right now, man. Uh, I appreciate talking to you. Let's, uh, let's do it again. Zach Boschman here, co-owner of CitizenTruth.org. Thank you so much for checking out this episode of the Citizen Truth podcast. The intro and outro song is Enthusiast by Tours and is provided via the Creative Commons license. Please subscribe and check us out at CitizenTruth.org.